It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. We are dorks here at the Money Guy Show, and this is this is your proof of how much we're dorks. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, had, I was at a breakfast yesterday morning, and um, I, the, the main speaker for this breakfast is a star student breakfast where you take the top students. He closed it out with saying that his favorite saying from Bill Gates is, is be nice to the nerds. And, um, and that's because you very well might work for one. And I couldn't help but think about that as I was reading our, our show prep today. And let me go ahead and tell you what we're going to be doing the Money Guy Show on, and then I'll give you a little background on who this is and what the Money show Money Guy Show is. But we're going to be talking about Berkshire Hathaway. Oh, Mr. Warren Buffett, Dr. Warren Buffett. I know he's not really a doctor, but I call him, a, he, he's a doctor of life, that's for sure, because you get a lot of information out of any one of his annual letters to the shareholders. The Oracle of Omaha. I mean, it's it's incredible. I, I, I will tell you, I have just so much respect for this guy. And that's why it kind of has been like Christmas time around here, because I love reading these letters to the shareholders. So we're going to be going over that in just a little bit. And I, I, I'm kind of curious to hear what Bo has to say, because we didn't, we didn't really compare notes. We kind of just took the annual letter and basically went our own ways. I actually carried my notes up to the kitchen area of our office building and was in there in the break room giggling to myself. And then Bo was back here in the, the back corner um, giggling to himself. So I'll be curious to see where we overlap and in, um, in the insight we have. And then, believe it or not, let me go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. I know that a lot of you have heard that this is out, this letter has been out because it's been all over the nightly news and there's even been some quotes and some excerpts that have been included. We're going to go the money guy difference, and I'm going to tell you some of the examples that Warren gives. I'm going to give you actual real-life quotes to prove his point to kind of show you, and that's that's really the money guy difference. So you're not just getting the echo from the average journalist out there. You're actually we're going a, a, you know, a good bit deeper so you get that, that money guy difference that we like to focus on. Now, for those of you who are just joining us, this is the Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston. By day, we actually are a fee-only wealth management firm on the south side of Atlanta. I am a certified public accountant, a certified financial planner, and a personal financial specialist. And we can't forget that we're also members of NAPFA. That's the fee-only organization you know, that you hear about a lot of other people talking about when they, they say call 1-800-FEE-ONLY. Or that, that's us. That's NAPFA. You know, it takes a, it's a great organization. Always enjoy writing my annual membership check. If you want to go check us out, you can go to money-guy.com. You can also write the show at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy as well. And I'm joined by Mr. Bo Hansen, um, who kind of is the producer slash guy who edits this show down to, to what it is. And then we've got a new employee, Nikki, who does kind of the, the show notes edits. And um, I, I think Nikki's a little scared of us now because we were in here <laughs> giggling about such a, a nor- dorky thing. I even heard you, Bo, tell her that you were a lot cooler before you started working here. Oh, yeah. I used to be cool. I'm, I, that's all completely left me now. I've <laughs> yeah. got nothing. Uh, I, I, it's, it's funny. You hang out long enough. I even made some obscure Star Trek um, <laughs> reference, and they, they both looked at me like they didn't know what I was talking about. I'm sure everybody else out there knows what the Borg is, but... These guys I'm working with have no clue who that is. But let's talk about some Berkshire Hathaway. And then um, let me also tell you, we're going to close out the show. I saw a documentary this week, and we're going to put this at the end because this is not really a financial matter. I do think it impacts the financial world because education is so important. But um, I saw that documentary 
waiting for Superman. And wow, let me just tell you, wow, wow, wow. It's incredible. And I thought the timing couldn't have been better with that DVD being released because Bill Gates had actually written um, kind of an, a, a letter to the Washington Post talking about how teacher development could revolutionize our schools. Um, so I want to give you some thoughts on that because, I, you know, you've got to always, somebody who's extremely successful, cutting edge, it, it, it takes, it, I think it takes, it's warranted to go listen to what their thoughts are. So we're going to close out the show with that. But let's jump right in because time seems to be moving very quickly for us. And I want to make sure we have enough time to discuss all of the logic and life experiences as well as life lessons that you can learn from Mr. Warren Buffett. So um, I think the probably the best thing to do, Bo, is we, let's just go through here and, and talk about what's on these letters. And Absolutely. what I had on... You know, he starts you off the first, the, it starts off with page two when you open the PDF format and it basically shows their performance versus the S&P 500. But then page three is the actual start of the letter to the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway. And, you know, really the highlight for 2010, if you want to know what they really did business-wise, he says was the, the acquisition of Burlington Northern Santa Fe, which is basically a, a, railroad. a railroad company. He, you know, they, they bought that. That was the highlight. And then this is the what's there's there's some things that have been getting a lot of attention in the media. I'm just going to read you this quote because you've probably heard it, and then I'm going to go ahead and give you the the money guy difference and, and give you an example of what he's talking about. It said last year, in the face of widespread pessimism about our economy, we demonstrated our enthusiasm for capital investment at Berkshire by spending six billion on property and equipment. Of this amount, five point four billion, or ninety percent of the total, was spent in the United States. Certainly, our business will expand abroad in the future, but an overwhelming part of our future investments will be at home. In 2011, we set we will set a new record for capital spending, eight billion dollars, and spend all of that two billion, all of the two billion increase in the United States. That gets me kind of excited. Yeah, I mean, it's because it, it is in the face of what I think a lot of people are predicting. You know, the the downward fall of the United States and our prominence on the you know. Economy, the world economic stage. And I do think we have some problems, but I think that, you know, it's like most things, there's a lot more people complaining than you ever have doers in society. I mean, that's that's what you see in the media. It's And I think that's what Warren's capturing to a large degree. It's, you know, let's continue on. It says, money will always flow toward opportunity. And there's an abundance of that in America. Commentators today often talk about Talk of great uncertainty. And we've even, you know, had a podcast on uncertainty. But think back, for example, to December 6th, 1941, October 18th, 1987, and September 10th of 2001. No matter how serene today may be, tomorrow is always uncertain. And man, that is, there is no bigger truth than that. And then he goes on, he says, don't let the reali- that reality spook you. Throughout my lifetime, politicians and pundits have constantly moaned about terrifying problems facing America. Yet our citizens now live in astonishing six times better than when I was born. The prophets of doom have overlooked the all-important factor that is certain. Human potential is far from exhausted, and the American system for unleashing that potential, a system that has worked wonders for over two centuries despite frequent interruptions for recessions and even a civil war, remains alive and effective. Uh, that's pretty powerful stuff. I think it sounds and, and great. And I've seen it all over the news media, pretty much that quote. And and this is where I want to go a, a step further 
than what the news media talks. Because you hear that and you go, oh, but Warren is just trying to protect his interests. He's got all these billions invested. He, he has to say this. He has to toe the party line that America is going to be okay because he knows that the world stage is looking to see what Warren Buffett says. But I really do think there is something to what Warren talks about. If you think about the fact that we are doing a lot more just in his lifetime, markets have, you know, as he said, six times, you know, Standard increased. Standard of living they, is, six they, times in, is six times greater. And part of that is just the way humankind is. The next part of what he says, and then I want to make my point by giving the example. It says, we are not smarter than we were when our country was founded, nor do we work harder. But look around you and see a world beyond the dreams of any colonial citizen. Now as in 1776, 1861... 1932 and 1941, America's days lie ahead. And that, that's powerful to me because you think about it, we probably are not any smarter than our founding fathers. You know, if you go read any of the writings from Thomas Jefferson or any of our guys, you know, it is amazing how sharp these guys were. And, and I have no doubt that Thomas Jefferson, uh, you know, Madison, Washington, whoever you want to talk about, and even go back to, you know, fast forward to Abraham Lincoln and some of our other, you know, not founding fathers, but just icons of American history. And these are not people that were any less intelligent than we are now. But yet, I guarantee you go put our elementary or middle school students compared to the, what they were back then, they have a, a lot more knowledge just because, and a quality of life is better because of technology and innovation. And that's not going to stop, guys. Even in your own lifetime, think about how the world has changed. I'm close to 40. And remote control back when I was a child was my foot, you know, laying on the sleep. I was sitting on the, the beanbag, and Dad would say, son, change the channel. And I would reach <laughs> up there with my foot and flip the channel. Now we have remote controls for everything. You can't go buy a boom box at Walmart that doesn't have a remote control attached to it. Even um, the fact that you call it a boom box shows how much times have changed. <laughs> it's, there's some truth to that. But I just want you to think about how much the world has changed. I mean, now, could you live without your cell phone? I mean, and I, I was thinking about this. If you're a parent, could you live without your children having a cell phone when they when they get to those those ages where you know they're driving and out there and out and about and you want to be able to check on them? It wasn't that way when I was a kid? You know, I go get in the car. My parents wouldn't know where I was until I essentially showed back up at home at night because you know we didn't have cell phones. You can't. It's not like you could call the payphone close to where I was going to be and I was going to run over there and answer it. This is what technology and innovation, internet. I mean, I remember when I went to University of Georgia, and we're going to get back on, on point, but I just think it's important to talk about how innovation changes the world, and it will continue. There's things that are going to happen 10 years from now that we don't even know about yet, and it's just going to blow our mind. But when I used to register at college, and I freaked you out about mm -hmm. talking about this, I used to have to go physically register that we had a central building that you'd all kind of goes like a cattle call where you all come in, you fill out a Scantron bubble sheet, stick it in this magic wall that somebody I'm sure was on the other side taking the Scantron plug it in, and then they tell you, and then they, you'd sit in this big room, and they'd call out your no, name, and you'd go up to the front, and it'd give you a sheet telling you what you got and what you didn't get. And what you didn't get, you'd go back and repeat the process and put it in the magic wall and start all over now. Now, you register probably on the internet. I mean, 3 a.m. I'm a boxer shorts in my room. I could add or drop as many classes as I wanted Wasn't to. Wasn't that way when I was at Georgia. And that, that's how amazing, and think about how much, people are amazed that productivity is where it is right now. It's really the innovation. And that's why I tell you, Warren is on to something. You can never underestimate the potential 
of, of people to come up with better ideas. Um, I want to read, I want to prove uh, Mr. Buffett's case one more thing that we found. And Bo, you actually brought this to me. We, we subscribe to a lot of newsletters, and one of the people we subscribe to had was written about how pessimistic the world is about things. And this ties into exactly what Warren was talking about. It said, and this is from a Time Magazine article dated September of 1992. Now listen to this. I'm going to read this straight from what was in this, this Time Magazine back in 1992. It says, If America's economic landscape seems sudden, suddenly alien and hostile to many citizens, there is good reason. They have never seen anything like it. Nothing in memory has prepared consumers for such a turbulent change. The sort of upheaval that happens once in 50 years. That may explain why so many voter polls taken as the economy shudders toward the November election reveal such ragged emotional edges. So much fear and misgiving. Even the economists do not have a name for the present condition. Though one is described as a suspended animation and never, never land. The outward sign of the change is an economy that stubbornly refuses to recover from the recession. In a normal rebound, Americans would be witnessing a flurry of hiring, new investment in lending, and buoyant growth. But the U.S. economy remains almost comatose a full year and a half after the recession officially ended. Unemployment is still high. Real wages are declining. At a time economic forum last week, forecasters predicted that U.S. growth would amount to only 1.8% this year and 2.6% for the next about half the speed of a normal recovery. The current slump, and I even highlighted this because this is, this is powerful. The current slump already ranks as the longest period of a sustained weakness since the Great Depression. That was the last time the economy staggered under as many structural burdens as opposed to the familiar cyclical problems that create temporary recessions once or twice a decade. The structural faults represent a once-in-a-lifetime dislocation that will take years to work out among them the job drought, the debt hangover, the defense industry contraction, the savings and loan collapse, the real estate depression, the health care costs explosion, and the runaway federal deficit. There's a sick eco- this is a sick economy that won't respond to traditional remedies, said one economist. There's going to be a lot of trauma before it's over. How familiar does that sound? And think about this. In September of 1992, you know what was not going on? There were not personal computers in every home. The internet was not just banging out like it is now. Um, I don't think Google was around in 1992. It definitely wasn't, Bo. Holy cow. <laughs> I mean, no. think about how bad, the, how bad that Time article said things were, and look at what happened over the next 20 years. Well, that's why I was going to read out the, the performance numbers for the S&P, including dividends, for 93 through 99. In 1993, the S&P returned 10.1%. In 1994, it returned one3 1995, 37.6%, 1996, 23%, 1997, 33.4%, 1998, 28.6%, and then in 1999, 21%. They're not really on the client roster, but but I can't help but give them advice. And one called, and he had found a website that was calling for the end of America. 
and he even gave the website to Bo. And he, Bo, he was practically in tears, wasn't he? I mean, I, I had to talk him off of the cliff. I mean, it's basically what happened. He thought that this whole thing was about to just go to pot. And I can't help but think, when I hear people give me these doomsday analysis, there's always going to be a way to make money, guys. There just is. Even if it's not in America, there's always going to be a way to make money. So don't don't get yourself caught up in... Remember, fear sells, and that's why a lot of what you see on the TV shows focus on the fear. But to hear Warren talk, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of money to be made in America going forward. I think there's some potential still out there. So let's um let's let's kind of fast forward on on through. And I thought it was very interesting. Um, it, Warren Buffett is the king of all shucksing. Do y'all know what all shucksing is? When you all shucks is when somebody gives you a compliment, you blush, and you just go all shucks. I, you know, I, I can't help it. You know, I, I don't deserve that. Warren Buffett does it all the time. Because listen to this. On, on page four, it says, The table on page two shows our 46-year record against the S&P. <laughs> a performance quite good in the early years, and now only satisfactory. The bountiful years, we want to emphasize, will never return. Aw, shucks. That's what he ought to have on here. The huge sums of capital we currently manage eliminate any chance, and he highlighted any. He put it in, in italicized. Any chance of exceptional performance. We will strive, however, for better-than-average results and feel it is fair for you to hold us to that standard. Oh, shucks. Let's go ahead and under-promise and over-perform. That's exactly what Mr. Warren... Now, he is right. I mean, if you go look at their historical performance, he was able to do a lot more in the beginning. And that's that's pretty common. And, and I, th- I wanted to kind of... Because whenever you read a, a letter to the shareholders from Warren Buffett, you need to be trying to figure out how you can turn this around to make it find something that you can benefit from. One of the things I I wrote in the the margins on that was when we're talking to our clients about small cap investing, and when we talk about small cap investing, we're talking about anything less than $2 billion in market capitalization. And and most small cap funds, good mutual funds, if they're really good, they close their doors to new investors very quickly. And it's always when you know you're explaining to a client what's the advantage of working with you, an institutional investor, versus just buying investments on their own. I always say I point to this. I say, look, we can get you access to funds you're not going to be able to get like small company managers that have closed their doors to new investors because we still have the ability. It's called what's in the industry called a soft close. Is that even though it's not open to new investors, they treat us as the client, so we're still able to buy new clients into that basket of mutual funds. And the reason they do that, if you're wondering, why do mutual funds close to new investors is they don't want to get too big because that's where you can really take advantage of opportunities is when you're nimble enough that you can buy a big enough chunk of something that you can capitalize off of it. You think about it, if Warren Buffett, with their huge size, if they find the next, let's just say Google, you brought up Google earlier, and they put an investment in that, and then it doubles and triples. They can't buy, you know, probably more than three to to ten percent of the company without really getting involved in legal, regulatory, and other problems. So, you know, the the gain, even if that investment doubles in size in relation to how big Berkshire is, it's not going to make a big difference. But think about if they made that big investment when they're a much smaller company it's going to pay off much bigger. It's going to be played out. So that's why you do see really good managers will close their door to new investors. And we're fortunate that we can capitalize off of that. Um, also, look down here at the bottom. It's, it talked, of, of course, that um, here's another all shucks. It says, looking forward, we hope to average several points better than the S&P, though that result is, of course, 
far from a sure thing. If we succeed in this aim, we will almost certainly produce better relative results in bad years for the stock market and suffer poorer results in strong markets. That's just saying that we're going to try to beat the market, but if the market's doing really good, I'm not sure we can keep up. But that's him all shucksing once again. Um, I liked this next thing because I think there's a huge life lesson, life lesson in this. This is on page 7. It said, and it, he was, I actually probably skipped a few pages in there, Bo, but it, it was, here's the thing that Warren is trying to do. He's talking about intrinsic value. He's trying to show how companies can be worth more than just what the book value is or what they, you have to think about long-term things and potential. That's the key point. I want to read this to you, and then I want to give you how you can put this into your life lesson that's from this too. And I've already given Bo a compliment on this, and I'm going to kind of bring it in this. It says, there is a third more subjective element to intrinsic value calculation that can be either positive or negative. And it's talking about retained earnings being deployed in the future. We, as well as many other businesses, are likely to retain earnings over the next decade that will equal or even exceed the capital we presently employ. Some companies will turn these retained dollars into 50-cent pieces, others into $2 bills. This is what they will do with the money factor. And he put that in quote. What will they do with the money factor must always be evaluated along with the what do we have now calculation in order for us or anybody to arrive at a sensible estimate of a company's intrinsic value. That's because an outsider, an outside investor, stands by helplessly as, as management reinvests his share of the company's earnings, meaning that you have no control. Yeah, you got a manager who did great with the money in the past, but you're really at their mercy of what they do in the future. And he continues on, he says, if a CEO can be expected to do this job well, the reinvestment prospects add to the company's current value. If the CEO's talents are, or motives are suspect, today's value must be discounted. The difference is an in the outcomes can be huge. A dollar of them value in the hands of Sears Roebuck or Montgomery Ward CEOs in the late 1960s had a far different destiny than did a dollar entrusted to Sam Walton. Think about that. Think about what that sentence, read that sentence one more time. It said, the difference in outcomes can be huge. A dollar of them value in the hands of Sears, Roebuck's, Sears and Roebuck or Montgomery Ward CEOs in the late 1960s has had a far different destiny than a dollar entrusted to Sam Walton. And that's, I love that because I, I think it, you know, it's the polished coin that's waiting to be picked up and then invested in something. It's the potential of an opportunity. And that's what you have to figure out the life lessons in these, these letters of Cheryl's. They're incredible. And the two life things that, that I thought of is that these both equate to life. First, let's talk about life. Um, I gave Bo the example of when I was in college, started dating my wife. She, God bless her for dating me. I come from nothing. Bo, you don't come from anything either. And I remember when I was set up with my wife by a mutual friend, my wife had asked what color my car was when I was coming to pick her up. And, and the friend that was setting us up said, um... It's kind of rust, you know, because that was that was the the color. It was really my car. I had I drove a nineteen eighty four Cavalier with well over a hundred thousand miles on it. You know, the air conditioner only worked in high. There was no low. So when you got one, you know, you'd either be hot or cold. I mean, that's really what it was in my car. And I, I still look back because my wife had a friend, very pretty girl, um, only would date people who came from family money. And I remember even then in college, and Bo, I'm sure you knew some that are mm -hmm. like that, that I always used to say, I felt sorry for her to a degree, is that that's, that's got to be so sad that all you care about 
is are they compatible with me but also do they have family money and you know and she was she was chasing after that well i'll give you you fast forward the, the you know going getting close to 15 20 years out of school and she's still single she's dated some famous people i'm sure she's lived some done some great things and traveled some great trips while she was hanging out with those wealthy people but they've all used abused and then thrown her away because they probably could see through that all she was interested in was their assets well as if she'd have found a good guy with potential like my wife did you're on you you know you got to recognize the potential and think long term it's not just what they have right now there might be potential out there and i told bo the same thing a lot of people in the financial industry you know that's what we do is manage money they when they make hires they really do pay attention to what the pedigree family history connections the, that, that a person has when they hire a person because they're looking to see if this person can bring in a book of business or essentially have a book of business in the next few years that will pay their salary. I didn't do that with you, Bob. I knew <laughs> so, you had sorry, tremendous... <laughs> it's fun. I, I see tremendous potential in you, and that's what we've we've invested in. I'm thinking long-term, just like Warren Buffett. I'm hoping you're the next, you know, instead of me thinking like, you know, the, the Sears and Roebuck or the the Montgomery wards, I'm hoping we're thinking like Sam Walton and we're trying to look at the long-term potential. So you got to look at these life lessons that are sitting out there. Um, I also did think, you know, for those of you who, who have investment managers who always recommend very sophisticated, complicated um, investments out there, I thought it was very interesting that uh, Warren Buffett talks about their second big advantage they have about investing is that, sure, they like to go buy private companies. And that's really what the, the, their bread and butter is on how they've made some great returns. But he says they do have an advantage. He says, most companies limit themselves to reinvesting funds within the industry in which they have been operating. That often restricts them, however, to a universe for capital allocation is both tiny and quite inferior to what is available in the wider world. Competition competition. For the few opportunities that are available tends to become fierce. And then he kind of carries over, hoping to highlight it on the next page. He goes, this is a supplement to this world as our oyster advantage. In addition to evaluating the attractions of one business against a host of others, we also measure businesses against opportunities available in the marketable securities. A comparison most managements don't make. Often businesses are priced ridiculously high against what can be likely earned from investments in just stocks or bonds. At such moments, we buy securities and bide our time. And this is, I did a podcast many years ago that got a lot of media attention on called Bringing Simple Back. And I think this ties in, sure, they, they, make a lot of, they make a lot of opportunity by going and buying private companies or turning public companies into private companies. Berkshire Hathaway's done that in the past. But sometimes simple is just better. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, buying into the, just the stock market, bond market might not be super sexy, but it can work just as well for you. And I thought that was pretty powerful stuff. Um, I thought th- this is on the same page, eight. It, it talked about... And I love this because I always tell prospects that we try to treat their money like it's our money. And listen listen to what, what Warren Buffett had to say. He said, moreover, the home office investment in furniture, this is how really funny how he laid it out, the investment in furniture, art, Coke dispenser, lunchroom, high-tech equipment, you name it, totals $301,000 in 363 as long as Charlie and I treat your money as if it were our own, Berkshire's managers are likely to be careful with it as well. Now, I want you to frame that. A lot of you might hear that and say, well, what's the big deal about that? He's got $300,000. Do you all not remember before Merrill Lynch was rolled into Bank of America and their shotgun wedding that the federal, the federal government kind of made happen, 
the the CEO of Merrill Lynch had his office redecorated and he was spending millions millions on artwork on desk that had some historical value. I mean, it was crazy what this the the former you know head of Merrill Lynch was spending on redecorating. Meanwhile, you got Warren Buffett, one of the richest guys in the world. He's listing his Coke dispenser and the three hundred thousand dollars that they've spent on their home office to keeping. I mean, that's desks, that's computers, that's everything, guys. I, 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 for a company that's worth billions with a B, to only have three hundred thousand dollars invested in your furniture and fixtures. And office equipment, that's incredible. I think that that's that just shows the mindset. Did you read the last sentence? I think I think he says it great right there. As long as Charlie and I treat your money as if it were our own, our Berkshire's manager will likely be careful with it as well. That's it's exactly the culture. What you want your, that's what you want your financial advisor to do. Yeah, he talks about the culture is important. You know, and I think you. That's why anytime I hire somebody here, I always say we walk what we talk. I mean, you definitely go. You know, you practice what you preach here at Preston and Cleveland. So if we're recommending. You know, somebody goes and buys term life insurance. You better make sure you have term life insurance. If you're recommending people invest 15 to 20 percent of their gross wages, we better be investing 15 to 20 percent of our gross wages. And I think that's important. You have to treat your money, your clients' money, like it's their own. So I think another great life lesson. Um, and it, it's we're about to speed things up here a little bit, but I couldn't help. This next story, Geico is. I don't, I don't, if anybody's a big follower of, of Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett, Geico is kind of there. He always talks about Geico, and I think he really kind of opened the curtain up a little bit here to show you why Geico is one, is so important to him from both a financial standpoint, but also just on a personal level. And I was just floored by this because it shows how in life hard work is incredible. Every now and then there's a little bit of pixie dust magic that kind of lines up the stars and gives you that experience that that you kind of see how the world all works together. And I thought it was great he gave a story on really how his his exposure to Geico happened. So I'm just going straight up, and I apologize that I'm reading so much, but it's just you cannot help but do that with how good this stuff is. This is on page 8, and then it goes into page 9. And listen to this story. This is amazing to me. It says, 60 years ago last month, Geico entered my life, destined to shape it in a huge way. I was then a 20-year-old graduate student at Columbia, having elected to go there because my hero, Ben Graham, taught a once-a-week class at the school. Um, by the way, great investor there, too. If you want to go look at some, some basic investment concepts, incredible. But carrying on with what, what Warren had to say. He says, um, one day at the library, I checked out Ben's entry in Who's Who in America and found he was chairman of Government Employees Insurance Company, now called GEICO. I knew nothing of insurance and had never heard of the company. The librarian, however, steered me to a large um, group of insurance, and after reading the page on GEICO, a book on, on insurance, and reading the page on GEICO, I decided to visit the company. The following Saturday, I boarded an early train for Washington. Alas, when I arrived at the company's headquarters, the building was closed. I then rather frantically started pounding on a door, until finally a janitor appeared. I asked him if there was anyone in the office I could talk to, and he steered me to the only person around. And that I'd pronounce that Lorimer Davidson. Um, he affectionately called him Davy. He says, this was my lucky moment. During the next four hours, Davy gave me an education about both insurance and GEICO. 
It was the beginning of a wonderful friendship. Soon thereafter, I graduated from Columbia and became a stock salesman in Omaha. Geico, of course, was my prime recommendation, which got me off to a great start with dozens of customers. Geico was also jump-started, also jump-started my net worth because soon after meeting Davey, I made the stock 75% of my $9,800 investment portfolio. Even so, I felt over-diversified. Subsequently, Davey became CEO of Geico, taking the company to under, under, was it? Undreamed, undreamed of, of heights before it got into trouble in the mid-1970s. A few years after his retirement, when that happened, with the stock falling by more than 95%, Berkshire bought about one-third of the company in the market, a position that over the years increased to 50% because of Geico's repurchase of its own shares. Berkshire's costs for this half of the business was $46 million. Despite the size of our position, we exercised no control over operations. We then purchased the remaining 50% of GEICO at the beginning of 1996, which spurred Davey at age 95 to make a videotape saying how happy he was that his beloved GEICO would permanently reside with Berkshire. He also playfully concluded, next time, Warren, please make an appointment. I couldn't help. I kind of get a little chills about that. That's pretty cool. A lot has happened at GEICO during the last 60 years, and this is how you know Warren's a good businessman. Listen to this, this plug, and I, I feel like I have to go ahead and give it to him. Um, a lot has happened at GEICO the last 60 years, but its core goal, saving Americans substantial money on their purchase of auto insurance, remains unchanged. Try us at 1-800-847-7536 or GEICO.com. In other words, get the policyholder's business by deserving his business. Focusing on this objective, the company has grown to be America's third largest auto insurer, insurer with a market share of 8.8%. That's just 20 years old. And decides to board a train and, and ride over. I mean, there's several things going on there that I think are pretty powerful. Um, we have a client who he, he always says, you never know when you've worked your best day. And I can't help but think, Geico, you know, he just, this is, Warren was such an, a driven guy that just for giggles, he loads up a, and go to ride over there to, to visit Geico, pound on the door until a janitor shows up, and then that chance meeting is what led him to make these stock investments, you know, for, for clients as well as for himself that probably was kind of the seed capital that made Berkshire Hathaway become what it is. So that just very interesting. I think it kind of opens up the curtain to, to what was going on with that whole process. Um, I fast-forwarded because I, I really think that the first nine pages must read, but then we kind of, I'm going to start skipping. Did you have something on some of the previous pages? No, that, no, I was going to say, because he, he gets into the individual business operations of all of their holdings, which that, you know, that can get dry if you're not a financial person. So I jumped over to page, gosh, it's all, I can't believe what time it already is, but it jumped over to page 16, and it talks about if home buyers throughout the country had behaved like our buyers, because they do have some lending institutions, America would not have the crisis that it did. Our approach was simply to get meaningful down payment and gear fixed monthly payments to a sensible percentage of income. This policy kept Clayton solvent and kept buyers in their homes. Home ownership makes sense for most Americans, particularly at today's lower prices and bargain, bargain, bargain interest rates. All things considered, the third best investment I ever made was the purchase of my home. Though I would have made far more money if I had instead rented and used the purchase money to buy stocks. The two best investments were wedding rings. I think that's hilarious that he put that. God bless him. For the $31,500 I paid for our house, my family and I gained 52 years of terrific memories with more to come. I thought that was sweet. 
Um, but he's, then he goes on, he says, but a house can be a nightmare if a buyer's eyes are bigger than his wallet and if a lender often protected by a big government, by a government guarantee facil- facilitates his fantasy. Our country's social goal should not be to put families in the house of their dreams, but rather to put them in a house they can afford. And that's important stuff. Um, I'm going to have to fast forward because we're running out of time here, but I thought it was very interesting on page 17, he actually lists the public companies that they're invested in. You know, the ones that grabbed my attention is he's, he's a big holder. He owns about 13% of American Express, about 9% of Coca-Cola, um, a little over two, a little under 2% on Johnson & Johnson. Very interesting. Um, I thought this was funny, and I probably need to quit grabbing all these funny quotes because we're running out of time. It says, in our reported earnings, we reflect only the dividends our portfolio companies pay us. Talking about what these public companies paid them. Our share of the undistributed earnings of these investors, investees, however, was more than $2 billion last year, meaning these companies held some of their money internally. These retained earnings are important in our experience, and for that matter, in the experience of investors over the past century, undistributed earnings have been either matched or exceeded by market gains, although in a highly irregular manner. He goes, and this is the funny part, indeed, sometimes the correlation goes in reverse. As one investor said in 2009, this is worse than a divorce. I've lost half of my net worth, and I still have my wife. (laughs) In the future, we expect our market gains to eventually at least equal the earnings our investees retain. So I thought that the, the marriage quote, I'm sure my wife wouldn't think that was as funny as I did, but I, I think it was pretty funny. Um, I thought it was interesting. They talked about Coca-Cola, their dividends. They expect those to increase drastically. And then um, he holds no punches on some hedge fund managers and people who profited in the 2000s. He said, when Charlie and I met Todd Combs, we felt we had fit our, our requirements. Todd, as was the co- case with Lou, will be paid. He's talking about, by the way, a lot of people have, have commented on Berkshire Hathaway because a lot of the owners and managers are in their 70s and 80s. Um, you know, a lot of people met running the company, so they brought in a younger guy to kind of help them out. He goes, um, he says, we've made arrangements in place for deferrals and carry forwards that will prevent seesaw performance being met by undeserved payments. They're talking about Todd's um, structure of, of compensation and, they, and they're saying that he's going to basically get a, a base salary but then on good years he's going to get a bonus but then they've leveled out those bonuses so if he has like one crazy great year he doesn't just get to to take all the profits and leave not anything for anybody else he goes because the hedge fund world has witnessed some terrible behavior by general partners who have received huge payouts on the upside and who then when bad results occurred have walked away rich with their limited partners losing back their earlier gains. Sometimes these same general partners thereafter quickly started another fund so that they could immediately participate in future profits without having to overcome their past losses. Investors who put money with such managers should be labeled patsies, not partners. (laughs) I thought that was hilarious. Um... Oh, the footnote before he close out talking about Todd. He goes, when we issued our press release about Todd joining us, a number of commentators pointed out that he was little known and expressed puzzlement that we didn't seek such a big name. I wonder how many of them would have known of Lou in 1979, Ajit in 1985, and for that matter, Charlie in 1959. Our goal was to find a two-year-old secretariat, not a 10-year-old sea biscuit. Whoops, that may not be the smartest metaphor for an 80-year-old CEO to use. <laughs> you can't help but love him. I mean, it's awesome. He talks about net net income, how he doesn't think it's important for, for very large companies because there is an ability to manip, manipulate that with unrealized gains and losses, meaning you can sell something with 
um, big gains in it and, and, you know, get your income back up during the, the bad, you know, the bad years, or you can game it the other way. And he just, he made comment that that happened a lot in the 1990s. He thinks it still happens now. Um, but not so much so. But he does say, I thought this was very interesting, because operating earnings, despite having some shortcomings, are generally a reasonable guide to how our businesses are doing. So he's saying pay attention to operating earnings, not necessarily net income, because net income can be manipulated. He says ignore net income figure, however. Regulations require that we report it to you. But if you find reporters focusing on it, that will speak more to their performance than ours. <laughs> I thought that was great. Um... I want to get to, gosh, I hate this life and debt. This is, I'm going to close it out with this. And by the way, I don't think we're going to have time to talk about the, um, uh, the waiting on Superman because we're already 40 minutes into this show. So I'm going to have to do that next show. I'll close it. I'm sorry for any of my education fans who want to talk about, it cause we're just going to have to end it with the, the Berkshire. But I wanted to close this out with the, the life and debt. It starts on page 22, and it just there's an incredible letter that kind of, once again, gave me those tingles. But it talks about how you have to be very careful using borrowed money. And he talks about how it can make you very rich, but it also can make you very poor. And it says, unquestionably, some people have become very rich through the use of borrowed money. However, that's also been a way to get very poor. When leverage works, it magnifies your gains. Your spouse thinks you're clever. Your neighbors get envious but leverage is addictive. Once you have profited from its wonders, very few people retreat to more conservative practices. As we all learned in third grade and some relearned in 2008, any series of positive numbers, however impressive the number may be, evaporates when multiplied by a single zero. History tells us that leverage all too often produces zeros, even when it's employed by very smart people. And then this is what I thought was incredible is it comes down here and it talks about you know his his relationship um, with his 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 partner and Charlie and it goes on it goes a little personal history may partially explain our extreme aversion to financial financial adventuresome. I didn't meet Charlie until he was 35, though he grew up within a hundred yards of where I'd lived for 52 years and also attended the same inner city public high school in Omaha for which my father, wife, children, and two grandchildren graduated. Charlie and I did, however, both work as young, bo- young boys at my grandfather's grocery store. Through our periods of employment, we're separated by about five years. My grandfather's name was Ernest, and perhaps no man was more aptly named. No, work, no one worked for Ernest, even as a stock boy, without being shaped by the experience. This is the part I kind of, I'm telling you, I'm getting tingly right now just reading. On the facing page, you can read a letter sent in 1939. That's powerful. 1939 by Ernest to his youngest son, Uncle Fred, my Uncle Fred. Similar letters went to his four other children. I still have the letter sent to my Aunt Alice, which I found along with $1,000 of cash. When as executor of her estate, I opened her safety deposit box in 1970. So you're, you're going to see how this is all powerful. It goes, Ernest never went to business school. He never, in fact, finished high school. But he understood the importance of liquidity as a condition for assured survival. At Berkshire, we have taken his $1,000 solution a bit further and have pledged that we will hold at least $10 billion of cash, excluding that held at our regulated utility and, ra- and railroad businesses. Because of that commitment, we customarily keep at least $20 billion on hand so that we can both withstand unprecedented insurance losses. 
Um, our biggest loss to date, having been the $3 billion from Katrina, the insurance industry's most expensive catastrophe, and quickly seize acquisition or investment opportunities, even during times of financial turmoil. So this is the letter. And this is, I'm telling you, this is a great way to close it out. It says, now remember, this is from Uncle Ernest to his youngest son, Fred. Owns a grocery store. Yeah, and he owns a grocery store, never finished high school. And I just think this is powerful because this is written back in 1939. And this still, this is how timeless good money management is because this is 1939. Here we are in 2011, and this is still timeless on how important it is. This is Dear Fred and Catherine, over a period of over a period of a good many years, I've known a great many people who have at some time or another have suffered in various ways simply because they did not have ready cash. I have known people who have had to sacrifice some of their holdings in order to have money that was necessary at that time. For a good many years, your grandfather kept a certain amount of money where he could put his hands on it in very short notice. For a number of years, I have made it a point to keep a reserve. Should some occasion come up where I, I would need money quickly without disturbing the money that I have found have in my business? There have been a couple of occasions when I found it very convenient to go to this fund. Thus, I feel that everyone should have a reserve. I hope it never happens to you, but the chances are that someday you will need money and need it badly. And with this thought in view, I started a fund by placing $200 in an envelope with your name on it when you were married. Each year I added something to it until there is now $1,000 in the fund. Ten years have elapsed since you were married, and this fund is now completed. It is my wish that you place this envelope in your safety deposit box and keep it for the purpose that it was created for. Should the time come when you need part, I would suggest that you use as little as possible and replace it as soon as possible. You might feel that this should be invested and bring you an income. Forget it. The mental satisfaction of having $1,000 laid away where you can put your hands on it is worth more than what interest it might bring, especially if you had the investment in something that you could not realize on quickly. If in after years you feel that this has been a good idea, you might repeat it with your own children. For your information, I might mention that there has never been a Buffett who has ever left a very large estate, but there has never been one that did not leave something. I mean, that's powerful. They never spent all they made, but always saved a part of what they made. And it has all worked out pretty well. This letter is being written at the expiration of 10 years after you were married. And it's signed, Ernest Buffett, Dad, in parentheses. I mean, that, that quote right there, for your information, I might mention that there's never been a Buffett who's ever left a large estate, but there's never been one who did not leave something. They never spent all they made but always saved a part of what they made. And it has always worked out pretty well. That sentence right there, they never spent all they made, but always saved a part of what they made, and it's all worked out pretty well. It's just, I mean, that's incredible, guys. I mean, you think about the family lesson that was then provided to his adult daughter, I mean, his adult son and, and his children. I mean, that, that's, that's powerful stuff. It makes, oh, I just hope I can be that type of person to my children. I, that's just incredible. But, um, Bo, you have any closing thoughts? Because I know this has gone on a long, I have even more to talk about, but 
I'm just going to have to close this thing down because I've got an appointment. I've got to make it to, and we've already about four, close to 50 minutes into this thing. I'll say this. You know, every year prior to this one, I've always read excerpts from Warren's um, annual letter. This is the first year I've ever read it cover to cover, and I highly recommend it. It's um, it's not a difficult read. You don't have to be a finance person. You don't even have to be like a money person. There's some good things in here. Um, I would. It's only 27 pages. You can read it in about 10 minutes. Yeah, it's great. Well, guys, thanks so much. I'm sorry I didn't get to the waiting for Superman We'll cover that in the next um, podcast. You can check us out, money-guy.com. Uh, I'm just speechless after reading you know, the, the great wisdom of Mr. Warren Buffett. I'll talk to you in about two weeks. This is The Money Guy Show. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. <laughs>